We hope you have your Bibles this morning. If you have your Bible, would you take it and open it to James chapter 3? If uh, for some strange, mysterious reason your Bible did not make it to church with you, there should be one in the back of that pew right in front of you. Uh, If you would open that up to James chapter 3. I want to let you know that this week, in preparing for this sermon, this may have been the toughest sermon I've ever prepared for. Hours and hours and hours trying to understand what James is saying, because the more I studied, the more I became convinced that the traditional way that we have read this chapter, the traditional way that we've been preached to about this chapter and taught it may not be really the best way, may not even be the correct way. So the more I studied, the more I became convinced that we need to look at this in a fresh light. I remember as a young boy catching my brother and my sister watching an episode of MASH. You know, we weren't allowed to watch MASH. And when we were kids, I did what came natural to kids, what siblings do all the time. I snuck upstairs without them knowing and I told my father. By the way, I was the youngest of six kids. I still have bruises to prove that that wasn't the wisest thing to do. In my family growing up, you were not allowed to watch MASH. And in my family growing up, when you directly disobeyed mom and dad, dad dealt out obedience lessons. And that's what happened to my brother and sister. You know what? Listen, our tongues, friends, your tongue and my tongue, there are no exceptions here in this room. There are no exceptions in the universe. Our tongues are tattletales. And what they tattle and what tale they tattle is what is happening in our hearts. That's what Jesus teaches, is that what gushes out of our hearts or out of our mouths comes from what is stored up in our hearts. When you speak and when people listen and when I speak and people listen, what is coming out of our mouths, what our tongue is speaking tattles on what is really in our hearts. How often do you hear people in the public spotlight say something inappropriate and it generates a media backlash? So they make an apology saying this, ready, listen, that really wasn't who I am. The fact is, friends, their tongues tattled on their hearts. And what gushed out was really the truth. It really was who they are. And that's true for you as well as myself. James 3 is famous for his teaching on the need that you and I have of harnessing our tongues, which have the potential for great destruction. Now, listen, I want you to really listen. I want you to interact with this this sermon this morning. I want you to be like the church at Berea where they heard something preached. They went back into the scriptures to confirm whether or not it was true. Don't just take what I'm saying for granted. Go back and study this this week. I'm about to teach you a different view on chapter 3. It's true that we should realize the power of our tongues. It's true that we should act accordingly. It's true that we should harness these tongues. But James has shifted his instruction to focus on those who are in leadership positions of the churches, those who have maximum influence. And friends, listen, those who have maximum influence in the church are the teachers. 
What he began in verse 1, he continues throughout the chapter. There is no shift in thinking. Just look at your grammar, look at the text in your scriptures, and you will come to the same conclusion that I have that James is still in verses 3 through 12 talking about the teachers of the churches. See, God has called and He's gifted people to teach, but the church is always, and listen, always, throughout the entire history of God's people, Old Testament and New, the body of Israel and the church, people have always had to deal with false teachers in the midst of God's people. And they deal with their destructive tongues. Notice with me that James uses the word body in this passage three times. Now listen, I'm going to teach you something new, something that most of you probably did not realize. I alluded to it last week. I'm going to unfold it this week. James uses the word body in two ways. You have your outline. You might want to write this down. This will make start making sense as further we go through this passage. He uses it in two ways. Number one, the word body, the way James uses it, certainly refers to individual believers. But friends, listen, at a deeper level, when James uses the word body, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the body of believers. James intends to deal with the destructive tongue of the body. Now listen, the tongue of the body to James is the group of false teachers in the church. Let me enlarge that. The tongue of the body to James is a group of those who are in positions of influence in the church. And there is no more influential position than the one who brings God's word in multivarious fashions to God's people. You remember from last week, verse 1, James said that not many of you should presume to be teachers. Now, some of you right now are thinking possibly, you know what? This is for the teachers. He did this last week. Why do I even need to listen? I'm going to think about football. That's why I don't use lapel mic number two, because it gets ESPN radio. All of you guys are totally out of it when I use that one. Listen, do you, parent, do you ever give counsel to anybody? Do you ever give advice from God's word to anybody? Do you lead a small group? Do you teach in the church? Have you ever had an opportunity to preach? You're a teacher. Those are all what teaching is. Discipling, mentoring. All of these are teaching. And James is dealing with those of you who teach. So maybe you are a teacher. And if you don't do any of those then maybe you need to pray for your teachers. James is addressing, friends, the whole church. The subject, however, listen, grammatically, the subject to, is, is to those who teach in the church. James is still, he's continuing, he's persisting, he's enduring and focusing on those who teach while he's applying these truths broadly enough that they provide principles for godly living for everybody. Yes, everybody needs to learn how to harness their mouths. Everybody needs to learn how to take control of their tongues so that wildfires don't erupt and ruin relationships. But friends, this passage is primarily for those who teach. The subject of teachers continues even at verse 13. Look at, look at your Bible. Who is wise? Verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Those are position titles. Those are tags for those who teach. 
He doesn't take a break. What he starts in verse 1 with teachers, James continues, friends, this passage for those who teach. So what message does God have for the church about the tongue? If we're going to really take this and we're going to move it off of an individual focus, this isn't about you personally. This isn't about me personally. This is about James, who cared very much for the purity and the protection of the early churches. If we're going to take this uh, at face value, what are we going to learn from it? I think we can learn four things. Number one, the tongue has great Influence. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 5. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we could turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Now listen, both of these images, the bit and the rudder, were familiar to these first century Christians. So why did James refer to bits and to rudders? Let me give you an illustration and then I'll try to answer that. Early in World War II, the German battleship, the Bismarck, sank the pride of the British Navy called the Hood. And a great chase began in the Bismarck. Days later, they finally found it, trying to flee from them. All of the British Navy was in pursuit. An aircraft flying overhead shot a missile, and it, and it hit the Bismarck on the steering mechanism and the rudder. So all that ship, that great powerful ship, which defeated the greatest ship in the British Navy, all it could do was just go around and around in circles until a barrage of British naval artillery sent it to the bottom of the Atlantic, costing over 2,000 lives. Both bits, now listen, both bits and rudders direct and control objects much larger than themselves. That's just simple. But you want to know why James is using this imagery. Here's why he's using it. These small little things can control majorly big objects. If James used, just think with me for a second, let's just work on this grammatically. If James used these two examples to only refer to our fleshly tongues, because that's the way that most people interpret chapter 3. If he's only referring to our fleshly tongues, then the illustration breaks down. The bit and the rudder control larger bodies. But friends, listen, your tongue doesn't control your body. Your tongue has no control of your body. In fact, the word of God says that your heart has control over your tongue. There is no control that the tongue has over the body. But James has in view here another tongue. And this tongue is the, the, the people, the body of people who are spoke, spokespeople for God. They speak for God to God's people. Those are the teachers and the influential leaders of the church. All three of them, the bit, the rudder, those who teach, while they are small, they exercise influence over the larger body. So let me sum up. Now, you've got to grapple with this. I warned you, you've got to really think. This was the hardest sermon I think I've ever prepared. This is tough stuff. This, to sum up what James is writing, if teachers who use their tongues to influence others are kept in check, the health and the condition of the church will be assured. This is why James pointed out earlier that those who teach, they're going to undergo, friends, listen, they're going to undergo, if you teach, you're going to undergo a greater judgment. 
They speak, you speak for God to his people. So we who teach must therefore be held accountable for what's coming out of our mouths. By the way, think about this for just a second. Who do you think in the church this applies most to? You're looking at them. Friends, this is a frightening passage for me. You want to know why this was so hard? Because I'm staring in a mirror. And I'm hearing James say, Tim, you're going to be held to a greater accountability. Tim, if you don't learn to harness your mouth, it's going to erupt a fire and many people are going to be damaged. You know, it's easy for a church's teachers, a church's group of teachers to begin to interject what we want to say and use the scriptures as support text for our opinions. You know, it's so easy to do that. You may have no idea that you could get the word of God to say virtually anything if you cut and paste it. It's why we don't preach in that style. It's why I preach expositorily. We go through passages. We go through books. It's a safeguard on that. But James is hard hitting. You know what? I get people once in a while. I had a man tell me a few about a month ago. He says, Pastor Tim, I'm really enjoying the church. But man, these messages, can't you just take a break, lighten up, give us something joyful once in a while? I had another person recently tell me that, uh, you know, it seems like Pastor Tim last week, when he's talking about teachers, it has a problem with some teachers in the church. Why doesn't he just step out of the pulpit and go talk to the teachers? Friends, listen, let me assure you, if we really had a problem with a teacher, I would go talk to a teacher. Our elders would go talk to that teacher. There is literally no teacher in our church right now that I have no peace about in, that, in their position. But what I'm doing, when you hear me teach so boldly, and sometimes you might think brashly, is I am so closely watching and trying to conform to the tone of James. Friends, listen, 52 times in this five-chapter book, he cracks the whip. They're called Greek imperatives. They're military signals. It's time to march is what they are. 52 times James is commanding, this is what you're supposed to do. If I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God, then I've got to preach in conformity to the way James wrote. So sometimes when you're backpedaling from my messages, and sometimes when you're saying, man, I wish he'd lighten up, go back to the text and see if that's what James was saying. Because I'm working hard to try to keep it the same way. I had a dear brother comment to me, Tim, please. Give us a break. I can't. I'd have to do injustice to the word of God. If I were to preach in any other tone than what James is communicating, friends, listen, I'm polluting the word of God and you ought to come talk to me about it. We who teach must use our influence rightly as we accurately divide God's word. Parents, ask your children. Ask your children what they learned in their Sunday school classes. Ask them what they're learning from the God's word at youth group. Ask them what God is teaching them through small group. Yes, small group and teens, there's a lot of confidentiality in that. But friends, there's some stuff that you could talk about. What is God's word doing in their lives? Encourage, friends, encourage those who teach well, who labor among you. You lead a small group, study hard, prepare. Center your group on God's word. Why would you bring anything other than the, the purity and the simplicity of the word of God into your teaching? Nothing else contains the power to get to the heart to lead to transformation. Nothing. 
You could bring in all sorts of stories. You could bring videos. You could bring all sorts of anecdotal approaches to teaching, and none of them have power to transform the heart. It's the Word of God. Why mess around with anything else? This is the positive look at James's um, teaching on the tongue's influence. But friends, there's a negative look as well. And that's point number two, the tongue can destroy. Would you go back into the text with me? Look at verse five, the, the second part of that, and follow with me for a little bit. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. This is strong teaching. This imagery to a Jew would have been vivid. They would have heard it. Now, you remember, listen, James wrote this letter and sent it to the churches where it was circulated. And most people, the majority of the average person sitting in the chairs did not have the ability to to read. So this is what they would do. They would speak the word of God. And that's why James says, do not just be hearers of the word of God, be doers also. So when they're listening to this, when they hear and is itself set on fire by hell, this is this is an eruption of vivid imagery. Let me tell you why. Fires were common. Fires were common, and they were one of the greatest fears in Palestine. By the way, if you hear anybody ever teach and speak the word Palestine, Palestine is the land of the Jews. With its abundance of low-growing thorn bushes and scrubs, the dry season was deadly. You get a spark, and a fire erupts, and it's a conflagration that just sweeps like a wave. You ever wondered why Moses, when he's tending his sheep, Saw a fire, what even captivated him to keep looking at it, to notice that it, that it wasn't burning up. Because he knew that if that fire erupted, both his sheep and his life were in danger. So he kept watching it. And every time he looked over there, the thing is still burning and it's not burning up. And he finally goes over to investigate. This is what James uses to vividly portray the dangers of the tongue. The Bible captures this, by the way, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 18. Surely wickedness burns like a fire, consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. Listen, a whispered rumor. Oh, man, gossip. It's a choice morsel. You want the filet mignon of the sins of the tongue is gossip. The Bible says it goes down like a choice morsel. But that whispered rumor can sweep through a church like fire. It sometimes doesn't stop until all the tinder, all the new ears, all those who haven't yet heard about it are consumed. Likewise, the tongue, it can cause great destruction when influential people in the church are allowed to teach and dissuade the congregation and introduce dissension. This is what James is saying. Now, friends, listen, the early church is in trouble. Why do you think James wrote this letter? Why do you think he included 52 commands? It's because they needed serious and immediate help and correction. And so he's writing them and he says a, it, the tongue is a world. Look at your text. A world of evil among the parts of the body. You know what that word world means in the Greek? It comes from the Greek word cosmos, which is with a K, not a C. And it means it's the system of the world that is opposed to and hostile to God. Here's what James is saying. There's a world of hostility. There's a whole 
heartbeat of hostility and, and opposition to God among the parts of the body. Remember what I told you that body is? That body in James' deepest teaching is the word of, is the, is the church, the people of God. There's a world of evil. There's people bringing in hostility. There's people bringing in opposition to God. And they're in your midst. And they're the people who are influential. They're the people that are the teachers. And there's some correction that needs to, to be administered, James says. And the congregation, a corrupt and influential teacher or teachers can corrupt the entire church. This diseased tongue, writes James, introduces the world into the church and results in opposition to God. As a worldly tongue can corrupt a person, worldly teaching corrupts a friend. Friends, let me, or corrupt the church. Friends, let me, let me tell you this. As we continue to see, James is incredibly concerned at what he sees happening in the early churches. You've got people, you remember, no social ladder. If you're born poor, you die poor. There's no way to get out of being poor in the Roman world. So here comes a wonderful shoot and ladder up to prestige, authority, and power. And it's called teaching and this newly beginning thing called the church. If I could become a teacher, I've got respect. If I could become a teacher, I've got influence. If I could become a teacher, I've got authority. And so all these people with mixed motives that were corrupting them, they were coming into teaching positions. And I don't know any church that says, oh, man, we've got too many teachers. Every church wants teachers. And so they were letting them climb into these positions. And the result was destruction to the church. These teachers are called false teachers in the New Testament. They were infecting the church with hostility. Friends, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I want you to listen very carefully. This is happening today in the church in America. Two weeks ago, I saw on TV in a major network, they aired a special about a defrocked pastor used to work with Oral Roberts in his ministry. They stripped his uh, ordination away from him because he began to teach that all people, regardless of their faith, will gain eternal life. This is what this man began to teach. Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, all are accepted because God is a God of love. Therefore, no one is going to go to hell. All people will go and have eternal life with the Father. How about open theism? Open theism has swept around us. It began in the seminaries. It's made its way into popular reading. You go to Hackman's, you're going to pick up some books, and there's going to be open theism in those books. Open theism is the belief that God cannot know the future because he's created us with free will, and the future is not yet written. So ultimately, we've got control of our lives. This is the, their explanation for how a good God can allow evil. Simply put, he didn't see it coming. But he sure knows how to pick up the pieces because he's a wise God. That's open theism. We've got a major movement in the church right now that is picking up unbelievable steam. It's called the emergent church, which is very different. Make sure you mark this in your mind. Different from the emerging church. The emergent church is revisiting our core beliefs of scripture, the inerrancy of, of God's word, the, uh, the complete substitutionary death of Christ, the sufficiency, original sin is revisiting all of these core doctrines. And it's inviting to the table people of all different faiths to be able to go and guide through a discussion. And whatever emerges out of that discussion is the new revised 
doctrine of the church for the postmodern world. Called the emergent church. There are numerous current and potentially destructive movements. Theophostic ministry, the new perspective of Paul. All of these things are gaining ground. Most of them you probably haven't heard of. But they're around there, and these movements are destroying the the church from the inside out. We've got to be aware of what's fueling these. In James' day, there were at least two particular problems that were surfacing in the early church. Here's what they were. We've already talked about them. Number one major problem was that the people who were in influential and teaching positions were creating an environment where favoritism ruled the day. If you had money, if you had prestige, if you had a reputation, you could teach. You had all that, you could be on the board, so to speak. You have all this, you could be influential in the church. The other problem that James is dealing with is that somehow people were saying, you know what, I could be a believer, I can have faith even if I don't live it out. I can have faith without deeds, and James is arguing faith without deeds is dead. These are the problems that James was dealing with. But the ultimate source, and here's what he says, the ultimate source of this false teaching was not God, it was Satan. Look what he says again, is itself set on fire by hell. Now listen, if you're a Jew and you heard me say that in Greek, then you would understand that the English word hell that we have here is translated from the Greek Gehenna. You've heard of Gehenna. Gehenna was located in the valley on the southwestern side of Jerusalem. It was located in the valley of Hinnom. And historically, it was a place where the king, listen to this, the kings of Israel in serving and worshiping the God of Moloch would sacrifice their oldest boys. By the way, Matthew, that would be you. Just for illustration's sake. Josiah came along and revitalized the spiritual atmosphere and uh, killed all the idols. They burned them in this valley, slaughtered those who were, who were following the God of Moloch. And then later, in King Jehoiakim, it was revitalized. In the days of Jesus, in the days of James, this place, this valley of Hinnom called Gehenna, was a place where all the trash of Jerusalem was thrown. All of the carcasses of the animals that had died in Jerusalem, they were thrown down there, and all the bodies of the executed criminals who did not deserve a proper burial were thrown down into this valley, and it was burned perpetually day and night. Every day, every night, smoke would be arising from Gehenna. Jesus used this mega-infested, fiery valley as a metaphor for his teaching on hell. And James adopts it and teaches that when your speech, when the influential teachers corrupts the church and abuses the trust and leads churches astray, they are under the influence of the forces of evil. It is critical that we understand the destructive potential of the tongue. Number three, the tongue is wild. Look what he says, James chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Having used vivid and familiar imagery, James now turns to showing how powerful the tongue really is. By the way, the Greek world, 
Did you know that the Greeks took great pride in controlling the animal kingdom? The Romans who conquered the Greeks and it Hellenized or brought a fusion of Greek and Roman culture, the Hellenization occurred and it was very common for the courtyards of Roman homes to have fish ponds with tamed fish. In fact, the Romans built a temple to their god of medicine and they had tamed serpents, poisonous serpents that would glide around the temple. And if you were sick and if you wanted this god of medicine to heal you, you would go sleep in that temple overnight. And if one of those serpents, which were incarnations of this god, they believed, glided over your body, then that was their belief, a visit from that god and you were going to be healed. So all this imagery is going through James's mind. All of this imagery is going through the people that he's writing to. This Greek desire to control the animal world. But while mankind figured out how to control the animals, they couldn't control the tongue. Look what he says. No man can tame the tongue. That word tame means to reduce to stillness or quietness. Nobody can reduce the tongue to stillness and quietness. Now listen, this is so important. James has driven us convincingly to the realization that you and I, we cannot tame our tongues. It's not humanly possible. So the, the alert person in their mind, if you're alert and you're engaged in this sermon, you're probably thinking like I think I would be thinking, what hope do I have? If, if James is saying this, this universal statement that I cannot control my tongue, no man can control their tongue, then what hope do I have? You know what Augustine said about this almost 2,000 years ago? He said that while no man can tame the tongue, there is one who can. That is Jesus Christ. And the psalmist reminds us of this in Psalm 141.3. says, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord, capital letters. This is God in pre-incarnate state, Jesus Christ. O Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. So while I cannot control my tongue, while I cannot reduce it to stillness, there is one who can, and it's Jesus Christ. Why can't we reduce it to stillness? Because the Bible says it's a restless evil, meaning it's an unrestrainable evil. And James likens the tongue to a serpent whose mouth is full of deadly poison. Friends, there's one more point that I want to bring from this passage this morning. And here it is. The tongue can be forked. Here's what he says, verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Listen, some of the church... Worshipped God when they were together, but when they got home, they cursed men. Some of them, if we were to bring it into today's language, they worshipped God like you and I did this morning. We sang of His holiness. We sang of His love. And then on the way home, somebody pulls out in front of us 
And what comes out of our mouth is not the blessings that came out of our mouth earlier. Or when we get home and we want to watch football and our family's intruding on that time. Or if you're hungry and your wife's slow in making the, the dinner. All of this stuff that comes pouring out of your mouth. We're just minutes before you're praising God and blessing him. But when we do this, it reveals. Now, this is so important. If you've zoned out of me out of this message because you don't like it, come back in because you're not going to like it anymore. But here's what it says. When we fork the tongue, the Bible calls this. Listen, double mindedness. Double mindedness occurs when there's a schism. Now, listen, this is what James. This is why James wrote the book. James wrote the book because there is a schism that developed between what we believe and how we live. In every age, this schism exists. We want to have faith, but we don't want to live that faith out. We want to love God, but we don't always want to love people. And James is saying that's immaturity. And if you're going to be mature, then you need to be single-mindedness. And so this book was written to fuse your faith and your life. And there's no better revealer of a schism than our tongues. When we praise God with our mouths, but we use those same mouths to hurt and destroy others through slander, through gossip, through that Christianized criticism. I say something derogatory about other people and then I say, but I struggle with it too. I have my struggles too. That's Christianized slander. And when we do that, the psalmist spoke rightly in Psalm 62. They, they said, with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. This was convincing James of a problem in the heart. It was especially convicting to Jews because, I don't know if you know this, whenever the name of God was mentioned, they would respond, blessed be he. So if I were to shout out Jehovah, you would say, if I were to shout out Adonai, you would say, blessed be he was the response every time the name of God was mentioned. But listen, even more, three times a day, devout Jews, Jews that were serious about their faith, serious about Judaism, they would recite the famous 18 prayers called the eulogies. And every one of those 18 eulogies started with the phrase, blessed be thou, O God. So for lips to bless God so frequently and so often during the day and then turn around and curse someone who's created in his image was unnatural, James says, unnatural to a redeemed man or woman. It demonstrated a faith that cannot produce redemptive works. Friends, listen, just define it like this. Any faith that's not producing redemptive works, listen, it's not hard. It's a dead faith. And dead faith in the heart of a teacher of the church is not only destructive, it is unnatural. Let me close this sermon by showing you what James is really saying in this. This was the case in these false teachers whose hearts were evil. Listen, these teachers, they looked like promising fig trees, grapevines and springs. Why do you come to church? I mean, honestly, it's, it, it's bizarre to me why anybody would come listen to me to begin with. But why do you come every week to sit in there where you have no interaction with me verbally and just listen to what I say? I think it's extraordinary. But hopefully you come here really hoping for words of truth that's going to come into your heart and satisfy your spiritual longings. 
Isn't that why we go to church? Isn't that why we listen to sermons? And these people were going to these teachers who looked like fig trees with fruit and grapevines with grapes and springs with beautiful cold water. And, and they appeared as if they held the words that could bring life, yet their springs, listen, gushed bitterness. Their trees bore the wrong fruit. And what was ultimately produced from their teaching was unnatural, unsatisfying, and listen, spiritually destructive. So I have to ask you these questions as we close. And I want you to interact with your, in your mind. It's the preaching and the teaching here at Cornerstone rooted in Scripture. Do you hear these sermons and go back to God's word to make sure that they're true? Are you able to discern, friends, listen, are you able to discern whether a teacher or a leader of the church is really wise and understanding? Are you are your, your ears tuned to be able to detect heresy? And this is where James turns next as he leads God's churches towards maturity next week. We're going to answer the question, how do you know if the teachers are wise and understanding? What's the evidence there? Because James is still teaching on the teachers and the influential leaders of the church. Friends, let me close with this. I can only imagine what goes through some of your minds when I'm preaching. I'm sure most of it's nice. (laughs) Do you listen and engage. And do you measure my words by the word of God? That's what we need to be if we're going to be a redemptive community. Encourage your teachers. Give feedback to your teachers. My door is always open. If you ever disagree with anything that I preach, come talk to me. But engage with the words of God as they come to you from your teachers and your leaders of the church. And let's see if our tongues are redemptive and lead this church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. This was a hard passage. Particularly hard because I know I'm at the focal point of it. But Lord, I got company and I have good company and I've got teachers and I've got elders and I've got parents who teach and I've got those who mentor and I've got those who disciple and those who lead small groups and those who counsel and give wise words and spiritual insight. There's a lot of company in this church for me. Lord, I pray for those who teach. I pray for those who are in a position of influencing the direction of this church. Lord, harness that tongue. Let us study and show ourselves approved. Lord, let us be diligent in preparation. Let us divide the word of God accurately. Lord, let us put our hope only in the word of God and not bring in anecdotal sermons and videos and anything else thinking that that's going to be what changes hearts. It won't. Pray for that help because no man can tame the tongue. But Father, Jesus Christ has the power to redeem our tongues. Make them fit for use in your kingdom. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.